Well, as you know, we're in the book of Habakkuk. We are starting Habakkuk chapter 3 this evening, and we've been on quite a roller coaster ride. Habakkuk has, has been up and down. In chapter 1, Habakkuk was worrying. In chapter 2, Habakkuk was waiting. And now in chapter 3, Habakkuk will be worshiping. In chapter 1, we saw faith tested. In chapter 2, we saw faith taught. And in chapter 3, we will see faith triumphant. This book has gone from doubt to doxology in chapter 3. Doubt in chapter 1 and chapter 2 to doxology in chapter 3. It's gone from perplexity to praise, from frustration to faith, and from sobbing to singing. Because chapter 3 is a psalm. It's a, it's a hymn. It's a hymn of praise. And we're going to see these four things this evening. Number one, we're going to see some kind of high-level things about chapter 3, about this hymn of praise. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on something called superscriptions. The superscriptions of Psalms and chapter 3 being one of the Psalms although it's not found in the book of Psalms. The second thing that we're going to see is the name of Yahweh, the covenant name of the one who is self-existent, the covenant name of the one and only God. Number three, we will see the fear of God, something that we have lost in our nation. Remember when people used to be called, used to say, she's a God-fearer. He's a God-fearing man. He She's a God-fearing woman. We never, we don't hear that phrase anymore. It's lost because we don't fear God anymore. We don't, as a culture, and as believers. So we'll see the fear of God, which is really the reverential awe of the Holy One, the only One who is holy. And finally, we will see a prayer for mercy. Let's look at our passage, Habakkuk chapter three, verse one. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianah. This is our first point about the kind of the, the big picture here with respect to chapter 3, which is that this is a psalm. Chapter 3 is a hymn. It's a song of praise, and it has the characteristics of a psalm. Like many of the psalms, it uses the word selah. As you go through the the, the, the verses here in chapter 3, you see at the end of chapter 3, verse 3, you see, or in the middle of it, the word selah. You see the word selah in verse 9 of chapter 3. Then you see selah again in verse 13 of chapter 3. You see it three times. Selah, no one knows exactly what selah means. <clears throat> it is a word that is used in the hymns, in the, in the hymns, the songs which are the Psalms, it's probably a musical instruction, but no one's 100% sure. It is probably something like an interlude or a pause as the song, as the hymn is going on, and then there's a pause, there's a selah, and it's, it's a pause suggesting, think about this. It's a pause of, of uh, an interlude in the hymn itself. And so chapter 3, like the other Psalms, has the word selah many times. Not all psalms have selah, but you'll see that throughout the book of Psalms. And then you see this word 
that is very unique in the scripture in verse 1. Shigianoth. Shigianoth. Say that five times with crackers in your mouth, right? Shigianoth. Like Selah, no one knows exactly what Shigianoth means. The, 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 the thinking is that it's related to the idea of music, but this is a word that really um, has been lost. And so because it's, it, we, we think it's related to music, that is, that is part of what leads the understanding to chapter 3 being a psalm, being a song. And the other part of the understanding of this as being a song is the very last verse of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 19 ends with, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So chapter 3 has a lot of characteristics of what the Psalms have in the book of Psalms. It has Selah, it has these words that are associated with music like Shigianath, we think, and then this reference at the end of chapter 3, verse 19, to the choir director and stringed instruments. Now, the other thing that chapter 3 has that is similar to the Psalms is something called superscriptions. Superscriptions. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines superscriptions as something like a note that is written outside of something else. It's a note that's added to a document. And so there's a superscription at the beginning of this chapter and a superscription at the end of the chapter. The superscription at the beginning is chapter 3, verse 1, where we read a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. That's a superscription. That, that's a note that seems to be independent of the text. And then you get to the end of the chapter, chapter uh, verse 19, you see, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. This is similar to the other Psalms. Just thumb in your Bible, thumb over to, to go to the left in your Bible, over to the Psalms. And what you'll see in the Psalms is that these superscriptions are actually pretty common. Go over, say, to Psalm 5. And in Psalm 5, <clears throat> before verse 1 of chapter 5, you see this, this note. In Psalm 5, you see this note that says, For the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. Or Psalm 7, a shigiyan, the only other time shigiyanath appears, a shigiyan of David, that's the plural, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Or over in Psalm 9, for the choir director on Muthlaban, a psalm of David. You see these introductory comments, these introductory notes on the psalms. Well, we have the same thing if you, if you look at Psalm 4, which I have up on the screen here. We have the same thing in Psalm 4, for the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. And so superscriptions like this, are usually in the third person. It's not in the first person, I or we. It's in the third person, he, she, it, or all the ones we just saw. It was about David, a psalm of David. And that's, that's the third person. And so the same thing here in Habakkuk 3, verse 1, because it says Habakkuk, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet 
according to Shigeonath. And superscriptions were often added after. They were often added by another writer, like in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 8, where we see Moses' death and the location of his grave. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, but he didn't write the verses about how he died, and he didn't write the verses about where he was buried. And so we see here in Deuteronomy 35, 34, verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, he the Lord, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for, Moab, for Moses came to an end. Moses didn't write that. Right? Moses didn't write about his own death and burial and the mourning of 30 days. Someone else wrote that after Moses' death. This is very similar to Luke, excuse me, to Psalm 51, where you have the superscription of Psalm 51 that says, for the choir director, just like we saw in those other Psalms, Psalms, Psalm 4, Psalm 5, Psalm 3, Psalm 6. This is for the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That is a reference to David's adultery when he had relations with Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah the Hittite. David probably didn't write that introductory note about how he had adultery with Bathsheba. David wrote the text of Psalm 51, not that introductory superscription. Now some say, okay, well look, if the superscription was written by someone other than the author, then that superscription cannot be inspired. Some say that superscription cannot be canonical, cannot be part of the canon, because it was written by someone different than David in that example of Psalm 51 that is on the screen right now. I argue that the superscriptions, even when they're written by a later person, I argue that the superscriptions are, in fact, part of the canon of Scripture, part of the inspired Word of God, and here's why. The scripture treats the titles of the Psalms, in other words, the superscriptions, as canonical in many instances. Look at Mark 12, verse 36, which says this, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So here in Mark 12, 36, we have in the New Testament a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. And in Mark 12, 36, it's saying that David wrote that psalm just like the title of Psalm 110, which is claimed where the, where the superscription says it's a psalm of David. You have the same thing in Acts 13, verses 35 through 37, where we read, Therefore he, God, also says in another psalm, Psalm 1610, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, and, and David is in the superscription of Psalm 16, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised 
did not undergo decay. Here's what that text is telling us, at least for purposes of our study tonight. Acts 13, verses 35 through 37 is saying, look, David wrote Psalm 16. And that psalm is about resurrection. But David hasn't been resurrected. He was buried, and he's in the grave. So even though Psalm 16 was written by David, which is consistent with the superscription of Psalm 16 in the Hebrew, the writer here in Acts says, even though David wrote Psalm 16, which is what the superscription says in the Hebrew, Psalm 16 wasn't about David, because David hasn't been resurrected. Psalm 16 was about Christ. And so what is happening here in these New Testament references to Psalms and the titles of Psalms and the authors of Psalms, Testament references are saying that title, the author of the Psalm from the superscription in the, in the Old Testament, that's true. That's part of the text. And then look at what happens in, with respect to Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22.1. In, in 2 Samuel 22.1, the superscript, the whole superscript is part of the text in 2 Samuel. The whole superscript of Psalm 18, which says, A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So David wrote Psalm 18 after he'd been delivered by Saul. And you've got this note at the beginning of Psalm 18, this superscription. And then you go over to 2 Samuel 22.1, and that same superscription is part of 2 Samuel 22.1 because the, the same language is there. And so what is happening is the superscriptions, whether it's in 2 Samuel 22.1 or in the New Testament, those superscriptions are being included in other references, in other texts, in other parts of the Bible. Now, at a minimum, if, if I'm wrong when I say that the superscriptions, in, in my argument that the superscriptions are part of the canon, in my argument that the superscriptions are inspired, if I'm wrong on that, then at a minimum, at a minimum, the superscriptions are reliable. The superscriptions are reliable and they've, because they've been part of the text for thousands of years, and none of the superscriptions are inconsistent with the text. So when you get a superscription of a psalm of David, like for Psalm 4, and then you get the text of the psalm, well, none, nothing in the superscription conflicts with the text of the psalm. And so, at a minimum, the superscriptions are reliable, but I argue that they are, in fact, inspired and canonical. All that being said, when it comes to our superscriptions in our text for this evening in Habakkuk 3, I believe that Habakkuk wrote both of them. The first superscription, Habakkuk 3.1, and the last superscription at the end of Habakkuk 3.19, Many commentators think that Habakkuk chapter 3 was really taken out of Habakkuk as, and then included as, as a psalm. And when someone took Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2 to Habakkuk 3 verse 19, which is the body of chapter 3, and turned it into a psalm, many commentators think, then they added the selahs. And then they added the note at the end of chapter 
3, verse 19, about for the choir director and the stringed instruments. There's no evidence of that. That, that. That's interesting speculation, but there's no evidence of that. If you just approach the text, then the text itself is part of chapter 3, all of chapter 3, including the Selahs, including verse 1, including verse 19. All of chapter 3 is part of this book of Habakkuk. And so I think Habakkuk wrote all of it because there's no indication otherwise, even the superscriptions. And in fact, that fits very nicely in this transition this transition that Habakkuk makes. Because remember, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's worrying chapter 1. He's waiting chapter 2. He's struggling. He's in angst. God, why don't you do something about the, the wickedness in, in, my, in my nation? Chapter 1, God says, I'm going to do something. And then Habakkuk is troubled that God's going to bring the wicked Babylonians. And so chapter 1 and chapter 2 is painful. They are painful for Habakkuk. And then in chapter 3, he, he pivots. He transitions. And chapter 3 is all about praise. And chapter 3 is all about excitement and worship. And what do you do as part of your worship? You sing. You sing to God. There's a reason why we sing on Sunday mornings. There's a reason why we sing in church. It's because the scripture is full of that method of praise of God. And so what Habakkuk is doing is he's transitioning from the worrying and the waiting. He's transitioning to chapter 3 of worshiping. And part of that worship is a song that he writes and that he wants to be written and, and, and sung with musical accompaniment. That's why he ends the chapter in verse, verse 19 with my instruments. That's what he says. For the choir director with my instruments, for the choir director on my stringed instruments, he wrote all of chapter 3. These superscriptions are part of this music that Habakkuk wrote, maybe not the, the, the tune, but the words that he wrote as part of this great hymn. The hymn of Habakkuk chapter 3 is a hymn of praise. And after the superscription in verse 1, right after it, you begin, it begins with the name Yahweh. And right before the very last superscription in verse 19, it ends with the, the name Yahweh. And so this message of Habakkuk in chapter 3 is all about Yahweh. It, in, it begins with Yahweh and it ends with Yahweh. This amazing name that God has given and that, you, that is used almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. It is the most frequent name of God. Look how God says it when he announces his name to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 13. There we read, and, and, and let me just give you, give you background here for a minute. In Exodus 3, Moses is talking to God through the burning bush and, and God says to Moses, all right, Moses, I want you to go to the Israelites and I want you to tell the elders of Israel to pack their bags and to tell Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, that all of his slave force are leaving. All of his economic power, his economic engine, they're gone. And so Moses says to God this in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? That reveals a lot. 
That shows you that the Israelites there in captivity as the, the prisoners, the slaves of Pharaoh, they didn't know this name that God is about to announce in verse 14. They'd never heard the name Yahweh before. They knew that they were the descendants of the God. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and they had a God, and so they worshiped that God. They knew that God, but they didn't know his name. And so in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. We see two things about this name about the name Yahweh. We see, number one, that he is the self-existent one. That's what these verses tell us. And we also see that he is the God of the covenant, the God of the covenant with Israel. Let me talk about each one of those. He is the self-existent one. The name Yahweh is made up of four Hebrew letters. Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, it's called the sacred tetragrammaton, which is the neuter form of the Greek word tetragrammatos, which means four letters, the four letters. And these four letters, we think are pronounced Yahweh, but we cannot say definitively. <coughs> Excuse me, this name comes from the verb, from the Hebrew verb hayah, which means to be. This is something that should blow your minds. God's name is a verb. And it's not a verb to eat, to run, to play, to talk. It's the verb that everything else centers around. That everything in language centers around, whether you're in the English language or the Spanish language or the Hebrew language. Every language centers around the verb to be. And God's name is a name that is a verb. His name is the name to be. My name's Alex. It's a, that's a proper noun. Your name is Joe or Susie or Molly or Pam or Cindy. We have, we have nouns to describe ourselves. God describes himself by a verb. That is related, the verb hayah, to be, is related to his essence. It reveals it reveals his foreverness, his beingness. And the reason why I say it is related to the verb hayah is our same passage here in Exodus 3.13. It's there in Exodus 3.14. You know, our passage on the screen is, is verses 13 through 14. But if you look at verse 14, all of this is, is baked into what's going on here where God says, I am who I am. It's the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew, aye asher aye, which is the verb haya in Hebrew. It's saying, I am haya to be, I am who I am, I am which I am. The point here is, is that God is using this Hayah, this verb to be, to describe himself. Because as, as you keep reading there in verse 14, he says, I am who I am. That's the verb Hayah. And then he says, 
Later in verse 14, thus you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you to me. Then you get to 15, and he says his name, Yahweh. When we read the text in English, we miss it because we've gotten so used to this name, the Lord. And, and, and Lord is, is, is a word that we hear in different contexts, right? I mean, they have lords in England, for example. You lord something over uh, someone else. He's lord over someone else. But we miss what's happening in the Hebrew because whenever you see in the Hebrew, in all caps, the Lord, think of it not as the Lord, think of it as Yahweh, because that's what it says in the Hebrew. And so God is saying here in verse 15, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name, and this is my memorial name to all generations. When the Israelites translated the Hebrew into Greek, about 300 years before Christ in the Septuagint, what they call the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures, at least by that time they had stopped pronouncing these four letters. They had stopped pronouncing the sacred tetragrammaton, and instead they would pronounce it as Adonai, meaning Lord. And part of that was this view of not even wanting to get even close to the issue of blasphemy, even close to the possibility of blasphemy coming from Exodus 20, verse 7, to not take the Lord's name in vain. But I think this is a system of self-righteousness. This is a system of legalism, because that's not what God said. God said, use my name, not, not misuse it, not use it in vain, not use it in a cuss word, like our culture does and cultures around the world, but use it as a name for me. This name represents God's foreverness. And God said here in this text, this is my name forever and my memorial name to all generations. This is a name that Habakkuk approaches with great seriousness, with great awe and wonder. And the connection between the name and the covenant is something else that I want to emphasize here, right? A moment ago, I said that his name is related to being forever. His name is the self-existent one. This name Yahweh means the self-existent one, the only one who exists without any other source. You need air. I need air. I need sleep, I need food, I need all kinds of things, as do you, but not God, because he is self-existent, he is to be. He is the one who needs nothing outside of himself. So Yahweh means self-existent one, as we saw here with I am, that name, that title, that Yahweh in the flesh, Jesus claimed for himself, I am, means self-existent one, but it also is a name, Yahweh is also a name that is related to the covenant, to the covenant that God made in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant, which he repeated to Abraham's son, not Ishmael, but Isaac, and which he repeated to Abraham's grandson, not Esau, but Jacob. God has this covenant which is the Abrahamic covenant that God established 
where God makes Israel, sustains Israel, and gives Israel a future. In Exodus 3.15, also on the screen, you see this relationship between Yahweh and the covenant. That's why in Exodus 3.15, he says, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. All of this is connected to his name. His name is a special name, and he covets, he takes his name very seriously. That is why one of the commandments is to not take his name in vain. Look at the connection between the covenant and his name in Exodus 6.6. 6. There God said to Moses, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Yahweh is the one who made Israel. Yahweh is the one who redeems Israel. Yahweh is the one who sustains Israel. Yahweh is the one who gives Israel a future. And what is so amazing is that you and I as Gentiles, I don't know if everyone here is a Gentile or not, but Gentiles in the church age, the church is made up of Gentile and Jewish believers. And in this age, while the nation of Israel is temporarily, temporarily, temporarily set aside because of her rejection of God, temporarily set aside because of her unbelief, we as Gentiles and Jewish believers, any believer, whether Jew or Gentile in the church, as church-age believers, we enjoy the place of privilege and blessing in this age. We're not Israel. We're the church. And there's a future for Israel. But we do have the privileged role of representing Yahweh in this age. Of representing Yahweh incarnate. Yahweh in the flesh. Israel represented the pre-incarnate Yahweh. Then they disbelieved. They didn't believe in the incarnate Yahweh. Church-age believers believe in the incarnate Yahweh. And so we have the privilege of Yahweh in the flesh revealing himself through us. We have the privilege of him revealing himself through us as he revealed himself through Israel and as he will reveal himself through Israel at a future time when Israel changes their mind about her Messiah. So this is the name Yahweh and it is the name that Habakkuk uses to begin this psalm in verse 2, and to complete this psalm in verse 19. Let me read verse 2 of chapter 3. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O oh, Yahweh, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk says, I'm afraid. I love Habakkuk's honesty. He says, I fear. In his prayer, Habakkuk says, I fear you. He's not talking about the Babylonians. He's going to talk about the Babylonians a little later in chapter 13 when he says he's afraid. Right now he's talking about Yahweh. 
He says, I've heard a report about you, and I fear you. Do you fear God? Do I fear God? Habakkuk feared God because of what he had learned about God. That's this, that's this phrase here in this verse, the report about you. Habakkuk learned, the report that Habakkuk learned about God is what God would do to Judah, right? Back in Habakkuk 1.5 and 6, where God said, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Habakkuk feared God because he believed that God means what he says and says what he means. And so he believed that God would do what God had promised to Judah because of Judah's rebellion. Habakkuk feared God because he believed that God would raise up the Babylonians, this wicked instrument, and he would use them to bring punishment to Judah. And Habakkuk feared God because he believed that God would in fact destroy that wicked instrument, would in fact destroy Babylon. Look how Habakkuk learned it in Habakkuk 2.6 when God said, Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him? The hymn there is the Babylonian, the, the Babylonian that God relayed five woes about in chapter 2, the woe of extortion and theft that the Babylonian did, the woe of greed that the Babylonian did, the woe of exploiting others, the woe of chemical lust and sexual lust, the woe of idolatry. And so Habakkuk feared God because he believed that God means what he says, and he says what he means. And so all of these incredible descriptions about Yahweh, Habakkuk understood them. These incredible descriptions about Yahweh that we've seen so far, that he is everlasting, chapter 1, verse 12, that he is the Holy One, that he is the Rock, that he is Yahweh Sabaoth, which means the Lord of, the, Lord of hosts, Host is an old English word meaning armies. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh of the armies. He is the ruler of the nations, chapter 1, verse 5. He answers prayer, chapter 2, verse 2. And he controls human history. And so Habakkuk fears God. He fears God. He's not cowering in the corner. He fears God, and what that means is reverential awe. There are different concepts of fear of God. The unbeliever will be in terror of God at the great white throne judgment in the lake of fire. A horror of horrors. And that's why if, you, if God has put an unbeliever in your life, you need to give them the gospel. You need to give her the gospel. You need to give him the gospel. That's one type of fear of God. That's not the fear of God we're talking about here. That's not the fear of God of Habakkuk. The fear of God that we're talking about here is reverential awe. All with respect to the God who is. This is where we should live our lives. In the fear of God. In reverential awe of the God who is. Look how the Proverbs says it in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. Is the beginning of wisdom. Or in Psalm 25.14. The friendship of Yahweh is for those who fear him. Now, the, friendship, the word friendship there in the Hebrew has this connotation of intimacy, 
of, of, of a confidant, of, of intimacy. The place of intimacy with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. I've said before, and I will say it again and again and again, this nation was founded on godly principles. This nation was not founded on Judeo-Christian principles. It was founded on Christian principles. Christian principles. And the reason I, I, I don't use that phrase Judeo-Christian is because that kind of includes Judaism and Christianity. We worship Yahweh in the flesh. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has come in the flesh as Messiah. Fully man, fully God. And this country was founded on Christian principles. Biblical principles. Noah Webster, from whom we get our Webster's Dictionary. Webster, in his first edition of Webster's Dictionary, Webster, who was a Christian, the first edition of Webster's Dictionary that he published in 1828, when he talks about fear, look at what he says about the fear of God in his dictionary. In good men, the fear of God is a holy awe or reverence of God and his laws, which springs from a just view and real love of the divine character, leading the subjects of it to hate and shun everything that can offend such a holy being and inclining them to aim at perfect obedience. This is a dictionary that says this. A secular dictionary. Or was it really secular? It's just a dictionary that has definitions of horse and rock and foot and fear. And in, his in Noah Webster's definition of fear, he explains scripture. And I didn't even put up here the citations to Jeremiah, the citations to scripture that he has in his definition. And his definition is right out of the scriptures. Fearing God means trusting him. Psalm 115, 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Fearing God means worshiping him. These are the words, these are the concepts that Noah Webster had in his definition. Revelation 14, 7, when the angel said, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. There's a reason why the world, why the media, why politicians, why educators want to teach your kids and your grandkids that we come from monkeys who throw their excrement at one another. There's a reason why the world wants you to think that your great-great-great-great-grandfather to the thousandth power was a monkey. Why? Why do they want you to believe that? Because they don't want to give God the credit that he is due. Once we recognize that God is the creator, chapter 1, chapter 2 of Genesis, then by definition we have to praise him. Because if we look at creation and we say that is not chance, but that is the work, the magnificent work of the one and only God, then automatically when we say that, we have to praise him. But if instead we believe that we are descendants 
of monkeys and we have simply lost our fur and gained opposable thumbs, then who is there to praise but us? Because after all, we've evolved. Or have we devolved? So we worship Him because He created things. And we fear Him. We approach Him in reverent awe because He created the universe. Fearing God also means obeying Him. Look how Solomon says it in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. So you got to love Noah Webster. Let's go back to his definition for a minute. You see how he finishes his definition of the fear of God? It, it, it is inclining them to aim at perfect obedience. Those phrases are important. Inclining them to aim. Those are important phrases. Christians, of course, do not perfect, perfectly obey God. We're sinners by nature. And after we accept Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we don't lose our sin nature we sin. That's why God told us about 1 John 1, 9, where we're to confess our sins. And we have a procedure by which we re return to fellowship with him. So we continue to sin. We should sin less, but we continue to sin. I don't say that to encourage sin. I just say that as a reality, a sad reality, but it is a reality. And so even though we continue to sin, reverential awe, Fear of God, reverential awe of God should give us the inclination to seek obedience. The bent, the inclination to seek perfect obedience. Are we going to perfectly obey? No, of course not, because we're sinners. But re re revering God, approaching God with awe and wonder should give us that bent, that direction to obey Him. Now today... Unfortunately, many have lost the fear of God. Many believers, unbelievers, never had it. I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about Christians in church. How many Christians would you say, and even when we look at ourselves in the mirror, would we say, we have a fear of God? We're a God-fearer. We approach God in awe and wonder and respect immense respect. Do we say that about ourselves when we look at ourselves in the mirror when we think in our quiet times are Christians this way? I think Christians have lost the fear of God and instead we view God as our pal. We view God as our buddy. We view God as our equal because we have been taught by the spirit of the age, by the devil's philosophy. We've been taught to put ourselves close to God, to put ourselves much higher than where we should be. He is the creator, and we are the created, and we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have forgotten Hebrews 10.31 that reads, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is written to believers we can't lose our salvation. That's true. It's not dependent on us. Our salvation is dependent on, on God and what, what God did through Christ. That's not talking about loss of salvation because a believer cannot lose his salvation. When Hebrews 10.31 says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of believers, the writer of Hebrews is saying that punishment 
for the believer for rejection of God is real and intense in this life. God will take out his divine belt and whip us and it will hurt. And loss of eternal rewards, which is a big deal, is real for the believer who takes God casually. We've forgotten Hebrews 12, 6. The reason why we don't fear God anymore is we've forgotten Hebrews 12, 6, which reads, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Scourging is a, is a brutal word. It's, 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 it's a very intense word. It's a word we don't use anymore. It's an old English word that means to take a whip, to take someone out with a whip, and to remove the skin off of their back. It says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. We've been taught by the spirit of the age to be casual towards God. But God, because if we have accepted Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, then we are the daughter or the son of God. And as his child, he takes your rebellion against him and my rebellion against him very, very seriously. And he will discipline us. Does he still love us? Of course. Are we still his child? Of course. Can we lose our salvation? No, we cannot. But his discipline will hurt. And so we have lost the reverence, the reverential awe towards God because we have come to view God in a very casual way and to view sin in a very, very casual, flippant way because our, our culture teaches us that. I mean, we even name a city after sin. I'm going to Sin City. I'm going to Vegas. Nothing wrong with going to Vegas. You want to go to Vegas? Go to Vegas. Don't sin when you're in Vegas. But the name Sin City, no one cringes at. Right? I mean, the word sin is no longer something that we cringe at. We're, we're used to it. God is wrathful towards sin and is opposed toward, and hates sin. And our attitude is, you know, whatever. And you know, it's, it's not good. It's an error. It's a boo-boo. But that's not God's attitude. We have lost the fear of God, which is a shame, which is contrary to the Scripture. And that's what Habakkuk has. He says, I fear you, God. In verse 2, he also says, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. Can I paraphrase that? Bring it on. Bring it on, God. Bring it! I want to see it, is what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, I believe you when you say in chapter 1 that you will judge Judah through Babylon. I believe it. And so bring it. He's saying, I believe you in chapter 2 that when you say that you will judge the Babylonians, so bring it. I want to see it. You see, Habakkuk started in chapter 1 questioning God. Are you indifferent, God? I keep praying to you. Do something about the wickedness in my nation, God. And nothing. Crickets. Nothing happens when I pray to you, God. Are you indifferent? Are you inactive? Are you inconsistent? Now that you tell me that you're going to bring the Babylonians to judge us, they're worse than we are. Now you seem inconsistent. So he starts with, being, with, with wondering whether God is indifferent, wondering whether God is inactive, wondering whether God is inconsistent. But now, 
This is different. Chapter 3 is different. Chapter 3 is about reverential awe. He says, I fear you, God. God's word has done its work in, Isaiah, in, in Habakkuk, right? From Habakkuk 2.4. In Habakkuk 2.4, the just will trust. I'm paraphrasing Habakkuk 2.4. In Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by his faith. And so God's word there, where God said, Habakkuk, trust me, trust me. And so now God's word, which will not return to him empty, has done its work in this prophet who was frustrated with God. Now this prophet is praising God. God's word has done its work in this prophet's soul. And now the prophet has gone from doubt to doxology, from frustration to faith from perplexity to praise. And so he says, bring it on, God, bring it. That's what these phrases, revive your work and make it known, make your work known. He says all that even though he's afraid. Even though he's afraid, in verse 16, he's going to quiver. He's going to tremble at the idea of the judgment that is coming through the Babylonians. But yet he says, bring it, God. Because he approaches God with such reverence and awe that he wants God's will to be done, even if, even if, it means his nation will be severely punished. And so he ends with these tender words, these tender words. He ends verse 2 with this phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. Those words just drip with pain. In wrath, remember mercy. Well, which is it? Is it wrath or is it mercy? Yes. It's both. It's both. Wrath is God's response to sin because he can't just blow it off. He can't just say it's all good because he's holy. He's righteous, and so that is his response to sin. And Habakkuk understands that God will bring his wrath against Judah for their rebellion. This wrath will hurt all of Judah. It will hurt the unbeliever and the believer. It will hurt the Habakkuks. It will hurt the Jeremiahs, who is a contemporary of Habakkuk. It will hurt the Daniels, who's just a young teenager at this time, who will be taken captive and sent to Babylon. It will hurt Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from their Babylonian names, who also were young teenagers at this time in Judah, who would be taken captive and sent to Babylon. And so Habakkuk asks for mercy. He pleads for mercy in the midst of wrath, in the midst of God's wrath. And Habakkuk knows that God is a compassionate God, even when he disciplines his children. Habakkuk knows that God is a God of mercy. And so he says that he asks for wrath. He asks for mercy in the midst of wrath. And he knows that God's judgment is for correction, not destruction. He knows that God is punishing Judah, punishing the Israelites, not to destroy them, but to correct them. And so Habakkuk trusts. He trusts that God will be merciful in his wrath, and he knows that unlike Babylon, Israel has a future. He knows that God will not destroy Israel because he trusts in 
Yahweh. And Yahweh has embedded in that name, it is the covenant name of God. It is the name that shows that God is the God of the covenant, the covenant with Israel. We should be praying Habakkuk's prayer. We should pray Habakkuk's prayer that God would remember mercy in the midst of wrath. Because, make no mistake about it, our country is rebelling against God and has for generations now, for many decades. And unlike Israel, the United States of America is not guaranteed a future. We're not. God may totally destroy us. I pray that he doesn't. But our rebellion against him, our mocking of him, our mocking of his Christ will not go undealt with by God. It's just a question of when. It's not a question of if. if. Now, if we change course, which I pray that we do, then God may be merciful. But we should pray this prayer of Habakkuk that when God lowers the hammer, that he would show us undeserved mercy because we certainly don't deserve it, just like the people of Judah did not deserve it. And secondly, the second thing that we should do in addition to praying that prayer is that we ourselves as individuals should be walking with God, confessing our sin, running from our sin, studying his word, lest we ourselves become part of the cause for God's judgment against our nation. And lest we come under our own discipline, specific to us, that God would impose on us as disobedient children. So we should be careful and not just say, point the finger to all those out there, but we should look at ourselves in the mirror too and confess our sin before a holy, righteous God and run from it and worship Him. This is serious business. Serious business. When I say business, I don't mean commerce, the buying and selling of goods. I mean the matter of God's judgment because God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. And we will see that next Wednesday night. Next Wednesday night, we will see the warrior, Yahweh, not as a lamb, the way he came in his first advent. We will see Yahweh in great majesty and power as a warrior as the the rest of chapter 3 goes on and it is one of the greatest theophanies in all of the scripture a theophany the, the, the manifestation of God and we will see that next Wednesday night let's close in prayer Father humble us break us Break us of our rebellion against you. We praise you. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your power. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your holiness. We pray for our nation. We ask that you give us a revival. We ask that you challenge us to submit to you. And we ask that you put up a roadblock from the the, the sprint that we are doing off the cliff as a culture. We ask for all of these things, and if we continue in our rebellion against you, and when the hammer comes down on us, 
We ask that you show us mercy, even though we recognize that we don't deserve a lick of it. We ask that you, in wrath, extend us mercy like your prophet Habakkuk asked for. We also ask that you challenge us as your children to submit to you, to confess our sins to you, to turn from them, to study your word, and to seek you, and then not seek the ways of the world. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.